seizure, right? So a seizure is basically any transient event that occurs due to abnormal excessive activity in the brain. So that sounds very general, but that's really what a seizure is. So it's defined by a clinical event that is um, associated with abnormal activity in the brain. So epilepsy is just having more than one unprovoked seizure at least a day apart. So uh, epilepsy often confers a lot of other meaning for folks, but really, you know, by the pure definition, it just means that you've had more than one seizure that's been unprovoked. So we also talk a lot about prolonged seizures or status epilepticus, which you may have heard of. So st status epilepticus is essentially any seizure that lasts more than five minutes or having several seizures that occur in a row without a returning to consciousness in between the seizures. So any event that's particularly prolonged. And we worry about these events because when they're prolonged, children can have, or adults can have um, compromises in their breathing and other things. And so we have to be quite aggressive about treating those. So a couple of more definitions. You'll hear us talk a lot about different epilepsy syndromes like absence epilepsy and other infantile spasms. A syndrome is essentially just a complex of signs and symptoms that define an epilepsy condition. So it's defined by certain symptoms that we see in the behavior associated with the seizure, as well as certain EEG characteristics. So by itself, a syndrome does not confer any type of prognosis. It just defines a set of symptoms. The other, I think, important sort of definition to, to sort of put out there is, is the concept of febrile seizures, because many of us have seen children with febrile seizures. Some of you may have children who have had febrile seizures. A seizure, a febrile seizure is any seizure that occurs in the setting of a febrile illness, which of course makes sense. Um, but more importantly, it's a seizure that typically occurs early in childhood. So febrile seizures most commonly occur between five months to five years of age. They're usually short then they're usually generalized, and we'll talk about what that means. Um, so anytime we see a child who has a fever and a seizure that's not fitting into this criteria, meaning they're much older or they have a much longer seizure, then we start you know, thinking about whether this could actually be a true epilepsy and not just a simple febrile seizure. Um, but again, I think that's an important definition for you um, all to have. So what is, just to put it in context before we talk about autism, what is the epidemiology of seizures or epilepsy in, in the you know, broader population? So in the US and Europe, the incidence of first-time seizures is about 70 cases per 100,000 people per year. So that's less than 1%, okay? And the incidence of epilepsy, and again, epilepsy is having had at least more than one unprovoked seizure, um, is about 50 per 100,000. So again, that's less than 1%. Um, the incidence is kind of bimodal, meaning it's most common in very young infants as well as in older um, individuals. What you should know though is in children, most commonly seizure, the most common type of seizure is a febrile seizure. So how do we think about, how do we diagnose and classify seizures? And again, this will all relate, this will all be relevant when we talk about autism, but I think having this framework will be very helpful because all of these kind of general processes I talk about are completely applicable to children with autism as well. So we diagnose seizures based on two things. One is a description by parents or by you know, um, observers of the actual event. What did it look like, right? And now with the advent of technology and smartphones, what's wonderful is that we can actually get videos of these. And I always encourage parents 
or caregivers to take videos of events that they're concerned about because it really speaks more than a thousand words can to see the event itself. When I was in training, we weren't actually, I'm dating myself now, but when we were, when I was in training, we actually did not have access to, you know, smartphones and videos all the time. And so we were really reliant on a verbal description of the behavior. But the videos can be very helpful. Um, but we also often will use the EEG, right? So the EEG or the electroencephalogram is a recording measure that basically picks up brain activity at the surface of the scalp. And based on the EEG, we can see if there's abnormal firing of neurons that would relate to what behavior it is that we're seeing. So in an ideal world, the way we diagnose a seizure is we have a behavior that's actually captured on an EEG. Okay, and so that's really the gold standard way to make a diagnosis. Sometimes that's not possible, but that's what we really try to achieve. And so based on the EEG and the behavioral um, characteristics, we can classify seizures kind of generally into two categories. And again, I'm giving you kind of the basics just to orient us. Um, and I can answer more detailed questions at the end. Um, but we think of seizures kind of fitting into two categories. They're either generalized or they're partial, okay? So generalized seizures are ones that start immediately from both sides of the brain and they affect the whole brain. So as you can imagine, in a generalized seizure, there is going to be a loss of consciousness, okay? So they don't always have to be the full generalized shaking that we see in generalized tonic-clonic seizures, but they're always associated with a loss of consciousness or a loss of responsiveness. A partial seizure is one that starts just in one part of the brain. Okay, so that can be associated with having very much preserved consciousness. You might see a child who just has shaking of one limb um, or very focal sort of motor symptoms, as we would say. Having said that, sometimes partial seizures can also generalize, and we'll call those partial seizures with secondary generalization, right? So this is a lot of terms, but again, it just helps us kind of orient ourselves into what type of seizure it is. And I think a really important point uh, is that seizures can be subtle, right? So seizures are not always going to be the very dramatic generalized shaking that we sometimes think of when we think of seizures. And I'll give you two kind of examples here of seizures that were quite subtle and were really appreciated because very astute parents saw these events and thought something's not right. And then we obtained an EEG and it allowed us to see that um, it truly was a seizure. So here's one example. Hopefully you can see this video. And this is an example of a um, of an epileptic spasm, as we would call it. Right, so that's a really brief event. And what you notice is his eyes roll back, he has a jerking of, his, of both of his arms, but it lasted, you know, not barely a second, right? So these can be very subtle. But that child's EEG did show that the, that was clearly a generalized seizure. Here's another example of a type of seizure that you may have heard of called absence seizures. These are staring spells, and these can be very hard to distinguish from kind of inattention. Um, what's interesting about absence seizures or staring spells is that um, if certain um, provocations are given to the child, namely if they're asked to hyperventilate, uh, we actually can induce the seizure. This isn't always the case, but often the case. So that can be a very helpful tool for us when we're trying to distinguish between a staring spell that's behavioral versus one that's a seizure. So this girl is hyperventilating. She's blowing on a pinwheel. And you'll see what happens as she's blowing. See, she immediately stops her behavior. And this is a, a generalized seizure. But do you see how brief that is, right? It's very subtle. And so we can often miss those things, whoops, um, 
even in the clinic, right? Or we can miss those things sort of um, uh, in, in the home or in school. And so we often rely very much on parents' kind of gestalts about whether they think that there's some events that are concerning. And then again, we look at the video and we'll usually obtain an EEG to determine that. Okay, so before I get into the autism piece, um, I just want to quickly say that there's a whole host of antiepileptics or medications we use if we do diagnose a seizure. And all I will say is that there's no one-size-fits-all approach with medica medications. And so what we actually do with medications is that we actually base it on what the EEG shows and what the behavior is. And we know that there's certain medications that are, in, for instance, very good for partial seizures, meaning seizures that just come from one part of the brain. There are other medicines that are much better for generalized seizures that really start you know, in all parts of the brain from the get-go. And then there are certain seizures that are certain seizures, sorry, certain medications that are actually quite good for both kinds, right? And so the way we decide on medications is really based on thinking about the other medications a child might be on, the side effect profile, you know, anything that we think will um, help us determine how best to balance the possible side effects with the benefit of the, of the agent, okay, for the medication. So again, there's no one right medication for every child. Okay, so I've given you that, that sort of really good, I think hopefully background so that we can now talk about what we know about epilepsy in autism. Okay, so we talked about, remember, the epidemiology of epilepsy in the general population. Well, the epidemiology or the prevalence of, of epilepsy in autism is much higher than in the general population. So epilepsy has actually been appreciated as a comorbidity, if you will, of autism for many, many years since the first descriptions of autism. And the prevalence is estimated to be about 15%. Okay, um, there's no one primary seizure type, for instance, generalized or partial, that is described with autism, so kids can have all sorts of different types of seizures. Um, but what is important is what we found is that, in, we meaning in, in lots of very large cohort studies, what has been found is that the prevalence increases with age. Um, and this is actually a really nice figure from a very large study that was done looking at four different large um, databases of patients with autism. Um, and they basically looked at the rate of epilepsy. This was a cohort of about 5,800 participants with autism. They found that almost 300 in that cohort had, had epilepsy. And they looked at many things, but one of the things they looked at was um, the rate of epilepsy by age bins. And what they found, so this y-axis is the percent with epilepsy, what they found was that in adolescence, the prevalence definitely increased. And so it's something that we have to be aware of across a lifespan of a child. We used to think that really the peak was in early childhood, and I think this study and others have really shown that the prevalence increases with age. So what are the clinical features of children who have seizures with autism, right? Well, we know actually that there are other comorbidities, if you will, that are associated with um, in children who have both epilepsy and autism. So the rate of intellectual disability or cognitive impairment is more common. So in children with both autism and intellectual disability, the rate of epilepsy is actually double what it is in children with just autism. We also know that children with epilepsy and autism have um, often greater autism severity, more adaptive function um, difficulties, and more behavioral challenges, okay? Um, and we also actually have been appreciating that epilepsy is more common in girls with autism. And so that helps us start thinking about who are the kiddos we really want to be screening, right? Who do we want to really be, have a low threshold for working up for seizures if there's concerning spells? And you might think by looking at this, you know, your sort of highest risk bin might be your adolescent girl who might also have some intellectual disability. 
Um, this is just a figure from a paper that actually just um, examined rates of epilepsy in a large cohort of kids with autism, and they binned them this time by IQ. And what they found was that in children who had IQs less than 40, the rate of epilepsy was almost 50%. Okay, so again, this is really important from the standpoint of management um, and, and us really being aware that it's not just the seizures we've treated, we to think about all these other symptoms as well. And I won't get into this in too much detail because of in the interest of time, but I think the question always comes up, well, why is there such a strong association between autism and epilepsy, right? And I bring this up because it does help us think a little bit about monitoring. Um, and I'll, I'll explain it this way. So one, you know, one of the kind of, there's two main hypotheses, right? So one is that there's a common genetic or some, you know, some biological cause, likely genetic, say, in, in a subset of kids, right? And that, co that cause, you know, be it a genetic mutation, is leading to aberrant brain development or function. Um, oftentimes we think that some of, we know that some of these genes that are, um, are associated with autism affect things like the balance of excitation and inhibition in the brain, right? So those basic processes caused by this genetic variant um, might predispose actually very early on to seizures, right, or just abnormal brain activity, which then might further predispose the child to developmental delay and maybe autism, right? So that's kind of one hypothesis. The other one is that this cause, this common cause, causes both, right? So both seizures and autism or intellectual disability are both the sequelae of this underlying genetic cause. And you might imagine the answer is that it's not just simply one or the other. It's probably a combination of both. And it depends in large part on what that genetic cause is. But what we are appreciating is that children who have identified genetic variants that are causative for their autism or are strongly associated with their autism, things like tuberous sclerosis or fragile X, in those kids, epilepsy is more common. And that's actually really helped us think about monitoring those particular individuals more closely. And I'll give you one quick example of this that's really emerged over the last few years. So one of the most common uh, copy number variants associated with autism is um, Duke15Q syndrome or, or duplications on chromosome 15. This is just a very busy figure showing the um, actual region um, that's duplicated and the genes involved, which is not really relevant for this. Um, but what the Duke15Q community has done is developed a very large patient alliance. There's about 1,000 kids now in the registry. Um, and they're all just adorable kids and amazing families. But what, we, what was started to be appreciated by families is that many of their children who had this genetic variant also had seizures. And so with this registry, a large group of folks were able to go back and look at the data and ask the question, are there specific seizure types in these kids? What is the prevalence of epilepsy in this group of children with this one genetic variant? And what was found was that 63% of these children in the registry had seizures. But it was a whole mix of different kinds, generalized tonic-clonic spasms, um, absence seizures, so a whole different host of types of seizures. And now there are studies being done to start examining what are medications that might work better for these children, right? So that really is a good example of how a genetic diagnosis can help us really think about monitoring these kids, right? And even hopefully thinking about more targeted treatments. In this population in particular, because of the very high rate of epilepsy, we as a clinics consortium actually have decided to obtain a routine 24-hour EEG on any child with a new diagnosis of Duke15Q syndrome because of the fact that many of these children have seizures and many of them have seizures that start early in life. 
Okay, so again, that's an example of where genetic testing has really guided our direct um, you know, monitoring of these children. Okay, so in the last few minutes, I just want to talk about another really important issue, and then we'll talk at the end about kind of what are our recommendations for working up children with autism who might have epilepsy. Um, there's a lot of questions I get asked by patients about the issue of just abnormal EEGs in autism, right? And there's quite a bit of a literature on this, but what we know is that up to 50% of children with autism who don't have seizures have some sort of abnormality on their EEG. So what might that abnormality be? It might be spikes, which suggests some irritability. It might be some slowing. And we only know that they're abnormal, um, which I don't love to use that term, but that they're atypical because we can compare those to AEGs of children who don't have autism, right? Um, and so the question always comes up, well, what do those abnormalities mean if there are no seizures? So it used to be felt that these abnormalities, such as these spikes, actually could be related to regression. Okay, and particularly related to an autistic regression. And what we have been finding really, you know, by doing sort of careful studies in this area, you know, and when I say we, I mean sort of the field, is that that regression that has been appreciated in a subset of children with, autistic, with autism is not the same as the kind of regression we see in children with epilepsy. Okay, and I think it's a really important distinction for us to make and to talk about quickly. So, there are regression syndromes related to epilepsy. And again, you don't have to sort of know how to read EEGs to appreciate that this is an abnormal EEG. There's a lot of spikes. And so there are certain syndromes where children will present with a profound developmental regression. And when we actually obtain an overnight EEG, we'll see this kind of spike activity throughout their sleep. And that's described as continuous spike in slow wave in sleep, or sometimes called electrical status epilepticus. Remember we talked about that term? electrical status epilepticus of sleep, okay? But in those epileptic regressions, the classic symptoms are that a child presents after age three with a dramatic loss of language. So this is typically a child who has a full repertoire of language and then they lose language, okay? And in those kids, as I said, the EEG has this particular pattern and treating them with high dose anti-epileptics can actually really improve not only their EEG, but also reverse some of the language um, loss that they have. This is very different than the classic kind of autistic regression that again we have that has been described and that we all have you know, seen in our patients. Again, this is not a very common phenomenon, but when we see it, it is quite um, you know, notable. And that is, the autistic regression is seen in younger kids, right? So it's around 18 to 24 months. And it's associated with really more of a subtle loss of language. It's not a child who has a full repertoire of words and then loses them. Right? And actually, the regression that we see is not just in a little bit of language. It's also a regression in social communication and in the presence of repetitive behavior. So it's truly you know, an emergence of autism symptoms. And in these kids, their EEG actually often can be normal. They may have some spikes, but they can be normal. Okay, So I, I really think that distinction is important because I get asked a lot of questions about whether a child should, you know, should have undergo a routine EEG or an overnight in the setting of what seems like an autistic regression. Okay, so in that setting, I'll end with a couple more slides and then I'm done. Um, the question is really this, right? Should every child with autism get an EEG? And the answer is no. So who should, right? So I will say that the American Academy of Neurology and the American Academy of Pediatrics guidelines do not recommend a routine EEG for children with autism. Um, what they recommend is that if we're going to get an EEG, we should get a sleep-deprived or ideally overnight EEG. And it's in children who have evidence of clinical seizures or any spells concerning procedures. 
in a child with language regression, right, as we just talked about, or in situations where there's a high index of suspicion that epilepsy could be present, such as a specific genetic syndrome. Again, with the medications, there's no one-size-fits-all approach in children with autism in particular. I will say that we do find that side effects can be more prominent in children with neurodevelopmental disabilities, so we tend to be much more ginger about the, ty the, the titration of our medications. But we are moving towards a place where we hope that our identification of these risk genes will help us think about targeted treatments, again, that really target the actual genetic variant, right, that could also improve seizures. And that's already been started to be studied in syndromes like Fragile X, the MECP2-related disorders, tuberous sclerosis, and hopefully soon Duke-15Q syndrome as well. So I will end with my last slide, which is a question I also get asked sometimes, which is when should you see a neurologist, right? So does every child with autism need to be referred to a neurologist? And while I and my colleagues love seeing children with autism and their families, the answer is you don't all need to come to a neurologist. Here are the times that you should come to see a neurologist or think about referring a child. One is if, if there is a developmental regression. Secondly is if there are seizures, of course, or episodes concerning for seizures. And in that setting, again, videos help us so much. Um, if, there is, um, if there are other comorbidities, things like significant motor problems or even sleep problems um, are areas that we can really help manage. Um, but anytime there's a clinical concern about an abnormal neurologic examination or, again, a known genetic syndrome associated with autism where there may be a higher risk for certain neurological comorbidities. Uh, and so I will actually end with that. Um, and at, again, at the end, I will be happy to take questions. Hey guys, we're going to please keep typing in your questions in the uh, question box in your control panel or email them to me. Uh, we're going to be switching over to Dr. Manasseh's presentation, which is um, about a brain tissue study looking at epilepsy and autism. So let me go ahead and introduce him. He is a postdoctoral research scientist in neuroimmunology within the Division of Clinical Neurology. He's also a lecturer in neurophysiology at Wadham College at the University of Oxford. He's originally Lebanese and has moved between the Ecole Normale Supérieure in Paris, Oxford, and Cambridge for his postgraduate education, which is in the natural and medical sciences. His doctoral project investigated the neuropathology of the primary olfactory cortex in autism and epilepsy, as well as the role of gamma oscillations, which are brainwave oscillations, in the time perception of autism. He now focuses on the maternal-fetal interface and the role of intrinsic or environmental factors during pregnancy that are transferred across the placenta and whether or not they can alter neurodevelopment. These factors may include certain antibodies against fetal brain proteins or factors resulting from oxidative stress to the placenta. He's joining us all the way from the UK, where it's much later than it is in the United States, so I want to especially thank him for that, and then turn it over for him to talk about um, his focus. Great. Thanks a lot for this introduction. Um, hi, everybody. And um, unlike Shafali, I am not a clinician. I'm a neuroscientist, and in this um, uh, hopefully not overly technical presentation, I'm going to talk briefly about um, the neuropathological features of what the brain um, uh, of an autism individual would look like at a closer look, 
and um, and also um, uh, dis discuss um, uh, my, uh, a very recent study I had published uh, on olfactory errors in autism. So the epilepsy component will be reduced because my main focus is on autism, but I have used the epilepsy group as a, a control group in my study, and I will um, explain uh, the importance of that uh, in the scientific method. So, um, First, I'll start with a brief outline uh, with a bit of a background on the neuropathology of autism. Then I'll explore the olfactory differences in autism and cover to a certain extent epilepsy. Then I'll discuss the study background that I published, its methods, and go over the findings. And I'll end with some conclusions and take-home messages. So to start first by the neuropathology of autism, I'm going to mention six um, specific features of the autism brain. The first one was on the uh, size of the head, um, and that has been described by Pouchen et al. in 2003, and that described that generally um, the autism uh, brain is smaller at birth, as seen uh, at this, um, this point in the graph and then gradually normalizes with age until the age of 6 to 14 months where you still have a slightly larger head compared to the healthy control population and this is still prominent until 15 to 28 months of age and then eventually that normalizes so this study was very important in identifying um, uh, the possibility of using head circumference as an early indicator of uh, autism um, the second study also by Kushen's group was on the number of neurons in the prefrontal cortex and they demonstrate that in, in autism there's a um, high, higher number of neurons compared to the um, uh, control population. The second uh, or the third line of evidence on the neuropathology of autism is the size of the mini columns within neocortical areas. And the mini columns are essentially, in our brain, we have uh, uh, lines of cells that could be demonstrated here. I don't know if you can see them. And they are pyramidal cells, and they're excitatory cells, and they're functional in units in the cortex. And what has been found in autism by uh, uh, my, uh, my Dr. Chance and other uh, investigators is that this finding is dependent on age. These mini columns are um, uh, narrower as the individual gets older and they are um, uh, larger uh, when the individual is younger and emphasizes that there are age-dependent changes in autism that are uh, related to the, that, that are uh, kind of mutable across the lifespan. Um, glial cell changes are also a feature in the neuropathology of autism or a feature of autism and what is meant by glial cells are um, uh, that are present in any area in the brain, they're the underlying pet that are nurturing the neurons. Um, and if you look at this diagram here, I'll just explore one element of it. Uh, you can see this pyramidal uh, cell body neuron, and around it you can see a microglial cell and an astrocyte. And both of these are responsible for providing protection for the neuron and providing food or the metabolic, responding to the metabolic um, needs of the neuron. So what has been found in autism is that, through many studies, there is a close association on a genetic level between uh, the autism uh, brain and certain genes that are related to this glial cell activation. Uh, studies on brain tissue reveal that astrocytes and microglia are in greater numbers in many areas of the autism brain. And in uh, individuals who are alive, particularly highlight here a young 
uh, in young males uh, uh, sort of a, a live study that involved the use of a specific technology called positron emission tomography from Japan that showed that these microglial cells are ever more active and at increased levels in many areas of the brain that include the back of the brain or the cerebellum, midbrain, the area involved in face processing, and the anterior cingulate. And then I present here also an important feature that relates to these glial cells that seems to be ever more described in the autism brain, and that's to do with the shape of these synapses. And so typically in the autism brain, uh, there's this model that's present, uh, that's been uh, published, that says that the neuronal, uh, the neuronal dendrites have more uh, dendritic spines or these sort of protrusions that you see on, on their dendrites. And these typically relate to the communication between neurons and how the brain is wired. And these are called spines. So what has been found in autism is, is that um, typically individuals have more of these spines, which could relate to this excitation inhibition imbalance that has been described in the literature. Um, and uh, more interestingly, uh, the, I will highlight at the end of this talk the importance of these glia cells, microglia, and actors in the when you're born and keeping some that which are relevant. So now I move on to uh, the background to my study uh, which was on olfactory cortex and autism and then um, uh, talk about the factory atypes or differences that are seen in autism individuals and discuss very briefly those that are explored or have been looked at in epilepsy. So in autism and uh, or in general in the olfactory literature we speak of three domains the olfactory identification domain olfactory threshold and olfactory discrimination. So identification means that you verbally need to recognize the object from which the odor arises. Threshold means that the sensitivity to the presented odor um, is different or is the same. Uh, olfactory discrimination suggests that there are two orders and then we need to discriminate between these two orders. And what has been published has uh, uh, been reports on individuals with Asperger's as a 1986 that seemed to experience extremely strong and unpleasant odors. So following on from that study, there were multiple straits. It is the domain of olfactory identification that seems to be more consistently affected, and that's a decrease in autism individuals compared to the other controls. Now, um, this is also counter um, uh, a recent study by Kushan et al. in 2013 demonstrate that, that in fact it's only in typical autism that this domain is affected, possibly, possibly due to the inability of the individuals to verbally recognize found that it's not the case in Asperger's syndrome, so loss of food recall in that category. Um, now, covering the olfactory auras in temporal lobe epilepsy, the descriptions date back to the 1890s to Professor John Jackson, who's the father of modern English neurology, and he describes in a specific type of epilepsy called temporal lobe epilepsy that um, uh, essentially uh, individuals experience uh, olfactory auras, and that's been consistently reported since then. Now, where these olfactory auras seems to, seem to emanate from is this area of olfactory cortex called the piriform, Animal models demonstrate that this area pathogenic, meaning that likely to, uh, if if if, um, if injured, uh, likely to uh, uh, to be sensitive to seizures. And in a human study on focal epilepsy, uh, it's been demonstrated that it is also this area that's quite um, uh, active um, in in uh, uh, in epilepsy. 
So in terms of pathology, um, it's the loss of neurons in that piriform cortex that has been seen in three patients with status epilepticus. So if you look at this figure here, so the piriform cortex has three layers, so that's one. I hope you appreciate the, um, the differences. This is a second layer of cells, and that's a third layer. Right, indeed that in this layer two here, these cells have disappeared. So that's a control patient and that's a, uh, an epilepsy patient. And um, just to tell you that um, essentially when we have injury to this olfactory cortex, we do lose the cells and there is no doubt at all that this could have impact on uh, olfactory uh, sensation. Now, uh, delving into, uh, into my study with Dr. Chance and Caroline Sloan, so the background to the study was that olfactory studies in autism have shown decreased olfactory identification. This olfactory identification is processed in the piriform cortex, and the piriform cortex is an epileptic structure. So for that, I remind you first of the anatomical orientations before I show you how we sampled uh, this, uh, this tissue. And uh, axial is this plane here, coronal is this plane here, and sagittal is when you're, uh, is this plane. So, to start first by the anatomy of primary olfactory areas, and um, the piriform cortex in this coronal plane here is, has two uh, arms, a frontal arm and a temporal arm, relating to the presence in the frontal lobe and the temporal lobe. It, is, it gets, um, in this ventral view of the brain, it gets input from the olfactory bulb all the way to this anterior arm and then posterior arm, and also gets some input from areas that are involved in memory, like the hippocampus, the amygdala, and the entorhinal cortex. And if you look more closely at the types of cells that are present, I hope you appreciate the morphology of these cells. So in the top layer here, which is layer one, and you can see these different cell types with their cell bodies here, and these tend to be inhibitory cells, and these layers two and three will contain the more excitatory cells in the piriform cortex. And also some of these cells in the deeper layers will also be um, uh, inhibitory cells. So in our uh, study, uh, the cases that were selected were 11 cases with autism, uh, 11 cases with epilepsy, and six cases with autism and epilepsy together, and um, uh, 11 cases that are controls. And that what we, the reason for this selection is that I wanted to understand um, whether there's an effect of epilepsy alone on autism. Um, and, uh, sorry, um, I wanted to understand whether, there, there's an whether the epilepsy component in, in autism is important. So in other words, whether the individuals with autism and autism and epilepsy are very different to the epilepsy, okay? So the age uh, uh, between these individuals was matched roughly for the mean, which was 30, 36.45, 25.67, and 34.18. Now, what does the piriform cortex look like under the microscope? So this is uh, a section, so you can see layer one here, so I try to delineate the areas here. This is layer two, which also relates to this part here, and this is layer three, which is a larger uh, area uh, with much more sparser uh, cells. And to do a proper anatomical study on this, uh, on, on the very limited tissue, one needs to sample in, from the front to the back, which means that the structure needs to be mapped in three dimensions. And this is what we do here. We first uh, start at the front of the brain, which demonstrates that there's this arm, which is the frontal arm that's visible of this olfactory cortex. And then you typically get this pear-shaped uh, uh, 
second layer of the piriform, and then you keep going to towards the back of the brain until you have a disappearance of the structure. And these are important because we want to find out what are the numbers of cells in the structure, how does the epilepsy affect them, is it something that's related to the autism alone or not. So it's very important to do uh, that sort of rigorous analysis. And then what we do next is to morphologically characterize specific cell types, typically neurons, which is what you see here, it's a very uh, large cell, and around it you see a certain type of glial cell called an oligodendrocyte, this is also another neuron, and then you can see also glial cells that include astrocytes, which are these two. Okay, and then we quantify all of these in different layers of the cortex, and then what we found in our study was that it is the glial cell number that was higher in autism compared to epilepsy and controls. And I hope you can appreciate here the difference. So this is the mean here, and it's at a higher level, the density of these glial cells compared to the means of the epilepsy and the controls, suggesting that there is something to do with these glial cells that's to do with autism alone, okay, as opposed to that, uh, to the epilepsy. Now, when we looked at the neurons, maybe it's not very surprising that we did not find any differences between the neurons uh, or the neuron densities between groups. And that potentially has to do, um, because these glial cells seem to be ever more important in the pruning of these synapses, uh, it seems that it's not the neuronal loss itself that might be affected, but actually the synaptic wiring, uh, because these glial cells eat out the synapses and eliminate them in a pathological situation. And in that respect, it is totally uh, predictable or could be predictable or justifiable that the neuronal differences aren't, aren't uh, that dramatic, but it's the synaptic connections that are. And then what we also found was that there was an effective age, uh, which meant that uh, the, in the control population you had a slightly stronger correlation with age, which meant that the older we got, glial cells we got, and in autism it was the other way around. The younger the individuals were, the more the glial cells, uh, the less, uh, essentially the more the glial cells were, and the less they became as the individual aged. And then, uh, just to briefly go across uh, uh, this, um, uh, we saw also other signs of pathology in the olfactory cortex, and that involved the presence of these aggregates that are known as corpora amylatia that relate to uh, astrocytes, and they were very much present. I hope you can appreciate here it's these little uh, dots that are present in higher numbers in autism around layer one of the piriform compared to the controls, and that is also a significant difference compared to the epilepsy group. Um, you know, histochemical contribution uh, important in the process glial density, you see that it's the microglial cells that are higher compared to the control and in autism so, uh, the anthrocytes um, which are these dots here so they're not as large in this case well very small not very visible in the control situation and in terms of exploring the lamination or how we look at the sort of layers of the piriform cortex and assess it across different condition, uh, uh, situations, well, we did a difference in the lamination, so this is like layer two, which is the dense layer, layer one here is the sparse layer, and layer three is the sparse layer with giant cells, 
we, we saw in some cases the presence of these large cells that are known as balloon cells that you typically encounter in certain conditions of epilepsy, highlighting the fact that it is possible that there's a contribution here from the epilepsy and not so much from the autism. And the next question we asked, and then uh, I'm finishing here, is that does the pathology extend to a neighboring region, which is the medial region from the piriform cortex, called the olfactory tubercle? And essentially, we did not see the same changes that we observed in the piriform, suggesting that it could be something that's very specific to that area for whatever reason. And uh, finally, what we also saw was that the hippocampal changes that we found in the epilepsy group were not seen in the autism. So something is really interesting here and is going on. So what are the take-home messages from all of this? Olfactory uh, cortex changes, it's a new area of research and not very much is known about this. And therefore more work will be needed to elucidate the relevance of these changes to autism. What is interesting and uh, important in that study is that the olfactory cortex changes, they seem to be more relevant to the autism group and not so much in the epilepsy group. More glial cells will be a feature of the autism brain and that's been described in the literature as I covered earlier. But what we don't know is that the contribution of each type to pathology, so we need to dissect what they are and then determine how each contributes to uh, pathology, whether they are a sign of pathology per se or ongoing in neuroinflammation, and whether they do reflect a disruptive wiring during development of the brain and are contributing to this miswiring, which is a very sort of uh, falls within the category of the pruning hypothesis. And finally, to what extent these changes are correlated with olfactory dysfunction. Now I put here as a final uh, message um, um, an example because it's very difficult yet to see the applications of research into olfactory cortex and autism and epilepsy. Uh, but at least in, 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 neuro, uh, in Parkinson's disease, the loss of sense of smell is predictive to some extent before the onset of more overt symptoms. So it's been suggested to be used as a pre-diagnostic biomarker in such diseases. So whether this would be relevant to autism at all, it's, to, it's for time to tell and for more research to elucidate the functions of this new area and relating it to olfactory function. So with that, I would like to acknowledge uh, many individuals, including Dr. Chance and the Neuroanatomy and Cognition Lab, Professor Angela Vincent and the best that you can see here. And thank you very much for your attention. Thank you, Dr. Manasa. Um, we do have some questions, but I'm going to go ahead and um, take some liberties and to ask my own, and I'm sorry if, if this is a repeat. But um, given the results of the glia uh, in people with autism on glia cells, what is the normal function of these glia, and how um, do they contribute possibly to the co-occurrence of autism and epilepsy? Yeah. Yes, so, uh, so glial cells are extremely fundamental. They're the underlying um, uh, cells that are non-excitable present in the brain and they are much more in number uh, comparing them to the neurons that are the excitable cells. So their main function is to one, buffer the extracellular environment to provide a, 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 a buffered medium for these neurons to provide the metabolic or come to the metabolic needs of these neurons but also in the case of an injury or a, an, an insult in, in the sense that if there's an infection or uh, or other and um, these glial cells respond very well and what they tend to do is isolate the, the area of the lesion or the area of the uh, of, of, um, of um, 
the infection uh, to try and keep the neurons safe. So typically that, that's what they do. Now how this is relevant to autism is that it's not, it's not entirely clear whether more glia necessarily suggests more pathology because they're just higher in number. And that only relates to something that I've been recently interested in, which is the synaptic pruning that is in, uh, that these three are involved in, which is possible. Um, now we don't know what they're responding to at the start, uh, uh, but we know that this response is sustained over time, and it could be that they are taking away from normal synapses in uh, uh, in, in autism or they're not active enough to take away synapses in order. So there are, there are flip, flip sides of, uh, of that. So I hope I answered your question. Yes, you did. Yes, you did. It's, it's, it's almost like, is too few not enough? Is it better to have too few or too many? And I don't think that we know that yet. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So we do have a couple questions. Actually, um, I'm going to give Dr. Jesse, some time. Someone has asked to see the results for um, epilepsy around age. So she had a slide that showed um, epilepsy across the different age groups. I'd like to give her the chance. Um, Jessica, if you could switch over, just maybe give um, Dr. Jesse some time uh, to, to, to get that slide ready. Um, in the, uh, the, there was also another question, um, which I will start to answer myself and then move on to um, Dr. Jesse. So someone had a question, because male and females um, have different rates of seizures, or male and females with, with autism have different rates of seizures, and actually they're more common in females, are there any attempts to study different medications in males versus females. Um, and while she's getting her while she's getting her slide ready, I would like to say that I think the there's not nearly enough known about females with epilepsy. So um, actually to my knowledge there hasn't been enough studies in males compared to females because we know most of the clinical studies occur in males to begin with or a preponderance of males but I'm happy to say that that's that that is changing um, and I'll let her comment on that and I think I did see the slide that um, she was referring to oh, sorry yes can no, you hear me okay. I can hear you oh good okay um, yeah those are all excellent questions um, so here's the slide uh, and again, this was a cohort. It, it's across four different. This is the Autism Consortium, Simon Simplex, Agree. It's um, uh, about it's 5,815 individuals with autism, and 289 had epilepsy diagnosed. Um, and again, this is these are the age bins. So this is just one study that shows that. Um, and again, we're, I'm happy to share these slides afterwards. Um, but just to bring up the issue of girls, it's an excellent question. I know ASF has been doing quite a bit of work and is very interested in, you know, the issue of girls and autism. Um, you know, I'm, a, I'm lucky to be a part of, um, uh, Dr. Kevin Pelfrey is the PI of a very large um, autism center of excellence, such a network study, meaning it's multiple sites, and the, it's really um, a study that is um, asking the question about, you know, what are the sort of biological and behavioral differences in autism in girls compared to boys? 
And so it's a study that um, the first round of that study is nearing the end. Um, and, this, and it focused on girls ages, I think, 8 to 12, 8 to 13. And the next study that, um, it, that we're proposing is actually, actually to keep following these girls into adolescence and adulthood. Um, because one of the things I think that is of great interest is, you know, why is it that these girls are at higher risk for epilepsy? You know, are there any biomarkers um, electrophysiologically that can help us predict that? And then, of course, the question being asked, which is a great one, which is, are there certain medications that are better for um, the girls? Now, I will say just in general in the epilepsy field, um, we don't actually find that there are certain medications that are better for girls than boys. We really do base it largely on um, the type of seizures that the child or adult has. What I will say, though, is that there are certain considerations we have to make in girls um, that we don't have to make in boys that do guide our management. And one good example is valproic acid or Depakote. So valproic acid or Depakote can be quite um, toxic to the developing fetus. Um, it can cause a lot of um, you know, birth defects, neural tube defects, even and problems in brain development. And so we really do not want patients who could be um, you know, it could be a childbearing age to be taking an antiepileptic like that. So Depakote is an example of a great antiepileptic that we do not use or try not to use in girls um, once they reach adolescence. Now, sometimes it is the best medication for their epilepsy, and treating the epilepsy is first and foremost, and so we will still use it. Um, but in any case, so, you know, there's considerations like that that we make um, based on treating girls, but it really it's a great question, and we do need to do more studies. So, Dr. Jesse, as a follow-up question, someone had asked actually about the effect of epileptic, anti-epileptic drugs taken by the mother. You mentioned um, you had mentioned valproic acid. Uh, are there others? I are there others that women should kind of pay attention to if they if they themselves have a seizure disorder? Right. So, you know, it's a good question. And the bottom line is that it's worse to have uncontrolled seizures while you're pregnant than to be on a medication. Uh, and so we generally the rule of thumb with management of epilepsy in a pregnant woman is that if she's already taking a medication that's working very well for her seizures, we're very reluctant to change or discontinue it while she's pregnant. Uh, and truthfully, really, Depakote is the big culprit, right? That's the one that's most commonly associated um, with um, you know, a variety of different neurodevelopmental sort of sequelae um, in the fetus. Um, but there are less sort of robust studies done on the other medications. You know, phenobarbital, some of the older anti-epileptics, you know, there's some suggestion that they can also affect fetal development. Um, but again, in the end, we really are, are careful about not making changes while a woman is pregnant because having a seizure while pregnant is potentially more dangerous um, than, you know, than the risk of the side effects. Um, also, someone had a question. Um specifically about something called ESES, uh, -E -E and the question yes. was, has ESES -E been studied specifically in autism, and does the regression appear to be more dramatic or different? Great question. This is exactly what this um, sort of section was about. It's a great question. Okay, so ESES -E stands for Electrical Status Epilepticus of Sleep. That is a that is a syndrome, actually, that's defined by the EEG and the presentation of the child. So classic ESES is, is defined by having at least 75% of your sleep EEG be, look like this, basically, so being just spike in waves. So this is essentially looks like a seizure. 
Um, and children with ESCS will have an EEG like this um, that really makes up 75% of their sleep. So you can imagine that it, that greatly disrupts their sleep architecture, right, and can really affect their development. What's very interesting in ESCS is we don't actually see clinical seizures, right, those behavioral events that we talked about. That's why it's called electrical status epilepticus. So it's a prolonged sort of seizure by EEG definition, but we don't see anything in, in the clinical um, kind of behavior. What we do see associated with it is this, right? So we see this very classic regression where children have a loss of language. Now, what's really interesting is that, you know, there's, it's been, you know, more and more appreciated, and I didn't put all these slides in here, um, which is that children with autism do have spikes, and actually there is an emerging sort of awareness that children with autism tend to have a pattern that is a lesser version of this. So some children will have spikes in their sleep that might make up 20% of their sleep, 30% of their sleep, not associated with a profound language regression, just in the setting of you know, someone obtaining a 24-hour EEG for you know, their autism or for spells or something, and we'll see a pattern that is not ESCS, but is a milder version of it. And so, you know, the, the real million-dollar question is, well, what happens if you treat those spikes, right? What if we treat them with an anti-seizure medicine? Could that help development and behavior? And those clinical trials just have not yet been done. I think there's a great opportunity to do trials like that. I think we just have to be really careful about how we define the sample that we're going to study and what our outcome measures actually are, right? Like, what are we really trying to improve? It's not just the EEG, right? We want to really try to improve either behavior or cognition or development. Uh, and those things need to be, you know, we need to design the study in a way that helps us really understand if we're doing that. Thank you. We have one more time for one more question, and this one goes to Dr. Manasa. Um, there was a question about uh, astrocyte numbers and whether or not, um, he, his question was, did I understand you've seen a trend in autism of abnormal astrocyte numbers, and are they similar to glial cells? Yes, so um, astrocytes are, um, uh, are part of these glial cell populations. So. To name a few, you have uh, the astrocytes and the microglial cells. So typically, in a um, in a first line of defense in the immune system, sort of uh, in, in in the brain. So the microglial cells will be the first to react, and then they release certain substances or molecules that attract the astrocytes that amplify the response and try to isolate the lesion. And uh, you have other types of glial cells like oligodendrocytes who do the myelin essentially. So, um, uh, so there are quite a few. So when we say glial cell numbers, we generally mean uh, uh, all of these astrocytes, microglia, and oligodendrocytes. Now, the trend that we see given the association with uh, the corpora amylacea, so and the astrocytes would have a strong argument that it is the astrocyte number that was increased. That's right. Uh, but we uh, haven't quantified each individual group. Uh, uh, well, we haven't done them separately, so it was a combined uh, uh, number of glial cells. Uh, so, yeah, that's a good question. So that's kind of... Uh, because you cannot do stereological or high um, um, quantification of, of uh, numbers of these cells uh, with the, uh, the tissue that's available. So the advantage of the method that we used was that you could see all these different types uh, based on morphology with this mutation and characterize them. And you need more tissue and, and more to, to be able to just do more numbers, essentially. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. We actually um, we don't have time for any more questions. 
a couple people have put questions in the question box that um, affect or have specific questions about their own child. So um, I tried to get back to them and ask them to send their email address, and I'm not sure if my messages are going through to them. So if we didn't get to your question and you have a specific question about your child, please send me your email address. Um, send me an email. So it's ahalliday at autismsciencefoundation.org. Um, and I will put you in touch with uh, the appropriate person to maybe get those questions answered. I really want to thank everybody who joined today. There were over 86 people on at one time, which is fantastic, and it really shows how important this issue is. So uh, keep an eye out. Uh, on December 13th, we'll be having another webinar, and of course, we'll be having them next year, too. If you have any ideas or any things that you think are appropriate for the Autism Brain Net webinar series, send me an email. And thank you so much to Dr. Jesse, and really thank you to Dr. Manasa, who it's uh, almost past its dinner time in the UK. So thank you so much. <laughs> thank you. Thanks thank a lot. Thank you, everyone, for listening. <laughs>